Welcome back to your political playlist. I'm your host, Emily Tish Sussman. This week, we're sitting down with supermom Crystal McCrary, who's dedicated much of her life to important causes, and now she wants a new job to be first lady of New York City. Her husband, Ray McGuire, is running for mayor. Between the campaign, their three children, she still finds time for her activism. Crystal is an award-winning film, television producer, director, and author. She's served as a producer for many documentary pieces profiling Black creators, historians, athletes, and more. Today, I'm exploring what activism means to her in her many identities. Welcome, Crystal. You know, so Crystal, I mean, I'm very excited to have this conversation with you because usually I'm speaking with women who are either making laws or suggesting power at a federal, uh, suggesting law changes at a federal level. And you have found different ways to be an activist throughout your entire life. Now, hoping to be the first lady of New York as your husband, Ray McGuire, is running for mayor. But I'd love to focus on your journey um, and Starting with the, 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 the first place that I idolize you in is as a non-practicing lawyer, but you were a real lawyer. Like, I'm a fake lawyer. You were like real deal, legit law firm lawyer. Like, how did that launch your career of activism? Well, first of all, I, I would not say myself real deal lawyer. I did work at um, the law firm Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison, uh, but I was only there for a couple of years, Emily, so... Uh, I can't really take the title of a real, you know, working lawyer, but I'll tell you what it did do for me is it let me know what I did not want to do. And the area of law that I was practicing, which sounds glamorous, uh, entertainment law, uh, essentially I just was drafting and negotiating contracts, uh, many of them for artists. Uh, and a wide array of artists, you know, from playwrights to choreographers to authors to visual artists, um, theaters. And what I did realize is how many artists, a lot of my work was pro bono, believe it or not, at a big firm. I did a lot of the pro bono work for artists, was how many artists, um, you know, have, you know, quote unquote, starving artists. And that's not fun to be a starving artist. Um, you know, and their work is so valuable to us as a city. Uh, there was a part of me that felt, uh, you know, akin to the artist because I have always written. That has been my passion for my life uh, before I even went to law school. But I came from a family who said, Crystal, um, I don't know what kind of a profession you can actually have as an artist or a writer. I think they more identified artists with starving artists. They said, you need to go to school and get a job that pays some insurance. And so, I mean, I had, you know, listen, I come from very, uh, you know, working class, you know, professional family. But, you know, my I was raised by my maternal grandparents. Um, my maternal grandmother, I call mom, is still alive. She's 95. She was a school teacher for um, 40 plus years in Detroit, Michigan. Um, my, my dad, grandpa, um, was a, um, he worked for Ford Motor Company. Um, so they were, you know, a family who had migrated from the South up to Detroit during the great migration for opportunity. So I just, I give you that background, very pragmatic, um, depression era, they were born in the 20s, depression era um, mindset. It's about saving, um, it's about being safe, practical and always having something to fall back on. And the artist is not something that they thought I could have 
um, a career as. So all that to say, went to law school like a good girl, <laughs> you know, quickly realized that this was not the profession I wanted to have. And I left and decided that my passion for writing and storytelling, I was going to try to turn that into a career. And so thus begins my creative career. Uh, I'll stop because I went on so long and we can talk about how, as a creator, how that has fueled my activism. Well, that's actually exactly what I, ta- what I want to talk about is that you hit so many different forms as a creator, as a writer, as a TV producer, film producer, um, director. I mean, so many different forms, it, storytelling that, yes. I, I mean, I really do see it as a form of activism that, you know, people can, the, the, the activists can only go so far in terms of changing laws if we don't have cultural change. I definitely felt that working on trying to change laws in Washington, that we could only really push so far if we didn't have culture change and telling those stories honestly in relatable ways is the culture change we need. I've often said that friends of mine that work in the arts, look, like you do the hard work. Like I'll try to change the laws, but like changing hearts and minds is far too hard for me. So how did you do it? Did you think of yourself as an activist when you were working in telling stories? Um, I think I have begun to think of myself perhaps a little bit more as a, I want to call it sort of a social justice warrior. And that's evolved in various ways throughout the types of stories that I have written, published, um, been on television, and it's been a range, right? So I've written books and done films that center around um, LGBTQ+. Uh, I've written uh gay black love stories. Um, I've, I've written, done a film which was uh, sponsored by the human rights campaign that centered around um, the LGBTQ plus world. Uh, I have done docu-series uh, at BET where, called Leading Women and Leading Men where I profiled men and women um, of color who've impacted the country socially, politically, culturally, uh, artistically, economically, uh, to shine a light on their stories. A part of that being I wanted to show the world that uh, Black people are not monolithic. Uh, I have um, done um, stories, uh, Little Ballers, which was for Nickelodeon, that centered around the power of sports for youth to transform lives. Uh, And, you know, one of my most rewarding areas of work has been doing the... uh, five short documentaries that I did on the Legal Defense Fund uh, with with Sherilyn Eiffel that cover a broad swath of um, civil, I I like to call um, civil rights lawyers, particularly the lawyers at LDF, civil rights legal architects, right? So you think about what they have done um, in the, the landscape of civil rights in America. I mean, they were the lawyers for the Brown v. Board of Education, case, you know, which ended desegregation in schools or were supposed to have ended desegregation. They were the lawyers for the Selma marchers and Martin Luther King. They were the lawyers that helped to get rid of some of the Rockefeller laws. Uh, uh, They're the lawyers on the front um, lines around um, uh, policing. So um, that has been an area that has been deeply meaningful to me to tell the story of the, the folks on the front lines that are actually trying to affect change. And I'll tell you this, there's a, there's a, a lot less bureaucracy in um, making uh, content, uh, creative content, than actually trying to, I imagine, be on the Hill and actually change laws. 
Well, once the stories are told, it makes it a certainly a lot easier to actually move forward on them. And, you know, as you're making, you've just been such an incredible champion. You've named so many stories and areas you've been able to tell, but you're such a committed champion of women that I've always really respected that about you. And yes. you really, you know, you are obviously connected at a city level to a, to a future politician here, but the fact that you introduced Vice President Harris to New York and really launched her campaign for her, what did that, what were you thinking about in really being that anchor for her as she launched her presidential campaign? Right. So a, cu- a couple of things. Um, number one, I just want to say this. Absolutely, I am and have been and will continue to be a champion for women uh, in every area in the arts and business, um, in politics. And I will say this about um, Madam VP and even before Madam VP, that I have supported um, a long line of women running for public office in New York and outside of New York. You know, from, from Tish James, uh, to Lucy McBath down in Georgia, um, to candidates also who a, were not Also successful. a podcast guest. We lo- we've loved Lucy McBath. She's Lucy also McBath a podcast guest. Love her. To Congresswoman Bonnie Watson Coleman in New Jersey. Um, but I will say this about my support of women politicians, and I'll get back to Madam VP. Um, the women I have supported, I haven't supported them just because they're women, to be clear. I haven't supported them just because they're, you know, black, brown, Asian, whatever. The women that I have supported, I've supported number one because I believe they had the skill sets to be elected and to be effective in the office for which they were running, first and foremost. And then on top of having the skill sets, I also believed that they had the agenda that was necessary for our community, right? So it's a two-pronged test. You know, just just because you're, you know, X, Y, Z doesn't mean I'm going to support you. You got to be bringing the fire. And so what I will say about, right, so, so gender, to be clear, we recognize that gender and representation is critically important. It is essential, right? And we know that there has been underrepresentation of women, um, across the spectrum of the workforce and and just pay inequity. And we can go on and on and on, which is deeply problematic, which is another issue, right? Um, but gender is critically important. Representation is critically important. But the agenda for our communities is what's most important to me. And are you going to bring the fire? So, yes, when um, my dear friend Kamala Harris uh you know, first decided she was going to run for president before, you know, it was even remotely public. Um, she called me, she's like, Crystal, I want to have, you know, I want to have breakfast. We went and have breakfast, you know, and I've been supporting her, you know, for her AG run, for her Senate run. I've been a longtime supporter of um, Kamala Harris because I believe she had the skill set and the right agenda. Um, Wait, this may be a little too much in the details, but what, it, what does she have for breakfast? <laughs> wow. I will tell you this. On that day for breakfast, and we had it, we had it, um, we were on the Upper West Side. I remember it was just the two of us. Um, she might have had oatmeal. 
Mm, I love she oatmeal in the morning. Have, she might have had oatmeal. I don't remember that. I will tell you this. I don't remember what she had at that breakfast as vividly. I do remember this because it's also a testament because you know what it's like out on the trail. I do remember distinctly what she had one night when we were having Chinese food in my dining room after she um, uh, had an event at the 92nd Street Y where she was being um, uh, interviewed about her book uh, with Cleo Wade. I don't know if you were at that or remember that. Yeah, but great she event. She had been all day. Remember that event? It was a great turnout. Uh, and she had been, you know, back to back to back events. And we came to my house after that. And she uh, was like, I'm just starving. Can you just order something? So we ordered Chinese. And it's like Grand Marnier prawns, <laughs> which is delicious. Anyway, um, but so, no, she said, Crystal, I'm thinking about running for president and I need you. I need your coalition of women. I need your support. And I, I, I'm sure I said yes before she even began, you know, finished her pitch. I was like, you had me at hello. And I will tell you, and you may remember this. I mean, you having been involved with a, a variety of um, campaigns. I just I believed in her. And again, I, did, I believed in her because I thought that she had the right combination of her knowledge of the law, her ability to um, honestly be pragmatic and be able to work in a way for the nation where we can bring different sides together, particularly in this divisive state that we're in. And that is so important. Look what a her. Yes, yes. And yes, I'm like, yes, co-signing everything. You're like, but yes, and I mean, but I really do want to, for me, her launch was very important. And I think for a lot of us, her launch was very important. We had, you know, one of my favorite slash crying saddest anecdotes about, you know, like the Hillary Clinton run was that the effect they were supposed to have in the Javits Center is that it was going to look like all this confetti, the glass ceiling was supposed to fall. And when I even think about it, I want to cry. I know, and I know. So, so when, you know, she ran as Senator Harris and ran for president and said, you know, that essentially saying like that glass ceiling of being taken seriously as a presidential candidate yes. for a woman has been run. And now yes. I'm doing it as a black woman, as an Indian American woman, as a first generation family woman and saying, and she had the biggest rally to launch, which by the way, oh, I yeah. also thought was, was really great and showed how much goodwill there was out there. But so her launch was important. And the fact that you did it together, how yes. did you think about that? Um, wow. I just believed in Kamala Harris so much very early on. And she recognized that a core part of her constituency was going to be the support of black women. And so the very first event that was done for her, I wouldn't even call it an event because it wasn't a fundraiser. It was just, it was a breakfast at my house for her um, with about, I mean, all, it was probably about 200 black and brown women uh, who came and uh, we knew that she was going to have to get her message across to them and what her platform was, particularly that there were large parts of the black and brown community that felt it was problematic that she had been a prosecutor. And so there were certain factions um, that didn't have all of their information, I will say, 
who, you know, ran with this um, narrative that, you know, we can never elect Kamala because she was a prosecutor and Kamala is a cop. And Kamala was putting black and brown men in jail. And they were running with that as a headline without understanding any context around that, right? So number one, when Kamala Harris first became a prosecutor, she became a prosecutor when 90 plus percent of prosecutors in this country were for the most part white men, right? And she approached it from the perspective of, we need someone inside of that room who is going to actually be approaching it from the perspective of how are we going to decrease recidivism? How are we going to make sure that young nonviolent offenders are not um, are, are not uh, arrested? How are we going to create homeward bound programs for them? How are we going to? So she approached it from um, sort of the inside outside game, right? And I think that candidly, for any type of progress that Democrats actually want to make, um, we're going to have to understand that we're going to need to play the inside-outside game more. And I think that that was a part of, I mean, not a game. She also was deeply concerned about safety. <laughs> I mean, she was, as a, as, a, as a prosecutor, as an AG, she was also, by the way, prosecuting um, you know, international, you know, in, international uh, drug cartel rings. You know, she was prosecuting, um, you know, uh, child molesters. I mean, there was, there's, there's real, there's, there is an importance to safety. And we can't act like that's not important, right? And I think that early in her campaign, there was this divide, um, particularly in the black community about is she really going to be good for black and brown people or is she going to hurt black and brown people? And so starting with, I mean, and just from a pragmatic perspective also, we know that, you know, black women in particular are the most reliable percentage base on a relative percentage base, the most reliable Democratic voters, right? They're going to come out and they're going to vote. And, and I will admit, sometimes to our detriment, but in the case of Kamala Harris, not to our detriment. Uh, and we needed to get that message out. And for th even those who were convinced on her, the substance, was there a concern about the fact that she was the first black woman running for president that she wouldn't make? I mean, I remember as a commentator, that was like some of the conversation that people and I remember even from working on Barack Obama's campaign in 2008, that there was concern of people. Well, you know, I like him, but I'm worried that other people won't like him. Like, sure. was that part of the conversation or not as much? Um, there was that concern by some that, you know, fear that having just been or still living through a Trump presidency where we saw so much racism rear its head within his presidency uh, and, and really saw the underbelly of America, of what was, what was tolerated, what was acceptable around just frankly racism in this country. So I think the fear um, emanated from people wondering, wow, is this nation really 
ready for a black woman president? Will this, will people actually go into the voting booth and vote for a black woman? Or is this, does this racism, is, is, is the racism um, stronger than the qualifications that she brought to the table? I'm happy to say that racism lost in that case, in that case, <laughs> um, right? So, um, but yes, that was, that, I, I, that was a concern for me. I mean, I wondered, you know, because when you look at the percentage of white women that voted for Trump, uh, over 50% that voted for him, where you probably have the numbers better than I do, Emily, what was it? Like? It's a majority. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a majority. A majority right? of white women across the country voted for Trump. Right. And in 2016, the first time. Right. And I'm one of those people, you know, the, the millions of um, disqualifiers for Trump. But I never got over him spending seven years with the birther lie. Like I was like, I was stuck on that. I was stuck. I was I was stuck. I couldn't even get to the other disqualifiers. Him calling for the death of the Central Park exonerated. I mean, I just like that level. So so all of that to say there was this, um, you know, it, it wasn't to the level of me being a pessimist about it, but I was deeply concerned. And I know that there were others as well saying, is America really ready to elect um, a black woman um, president, a black woman vice president, no matter how qualified she is. Oh, yeah. No, Sister Kamala is qualified. <laughs> and I will say my all my sisters, my white sisters, my Asian sisters, my black sisters, my brother, they, they did come out and for, for, for Kamala and vote. They did come out and vote for her. So, I mean, this is very recent history. Like, this is not that long ago. Was that part of the framing of the decision for you to then launch your husband, Ray McGuire's campaign for mayor of New York City? Like, did that experience take you to then say, you know what, like, we should be doing this ourselves? Um, no, for Ray, um, I'll, I'll just pull back for a second. Ray never had political aspirations, um, although I will say somebody just pulled up an article of him back from Dayton, Ohio, when he was like um, 16 years old, or he was saying, I might one day come back home to Dayton, Ohio and run for something. But then, you know, he went on another trajectory. So what I'll tell you about Ray that a lot of people don't know and something that is just really um, interesting for me about this process and Ray's journey to run for mayor of New York City. Um, a lot of people, of course, you know, who only knew Ray in the world of finance um, and business, uh, they didn't know him as the man who for 35 plus years has actually been materially contributing to the lives of New Yorkers from every borough, right? And when I say that, I mean contributing in helping to build schools, helping to build nurses stations, helping to um, create access to capital for women-owned businesses, helping to build cultural and art, um, art, art, cultural and art institutions, helping to fund startups, being a mentor to thousands and thousands of New Yorkers, right? 
Um, he has been contributing to the um, livelihood, the success of New York City for over 35 years. And I dare say he's probably created more wealth. And I don't mean like in the billion dollar deals or multi-million dollar deals, but in terms of opportunity, he's very likely created more wealth than any of the other, any of the other candidates combined for New Yorkers, right? And he felt a calling. He felt a calling. Seeing that the city, it was broke, as he'll say, broke, broken, there's an opportunity to come in here and actually help fix it and bring in his skills as a business person, the management skills, the ability to attract um, the, the brightest, smartest, most talented folks across the city, across the nation to help rebuild New York City. I mean, we know that there much respect to, to, to public servants who have been in office I take my hats off to them. There's some extraordinary people running for, for, for mayor of New York City, and I commend them. I commend the, there, there are three black women running for mayor of New York City, um, and, and Catherine Garcia, I mean, so four women running for mayor. So this is a historic run. But what I will say is, as a woman who has supported women candidates, who has supported a wide array of um, Democratic candidates. Ray brings something to the table that none of them have. And what he brings is the business management experience. While all of them, you got some technocrats, you got some that are good in civil rights, you got some that are good in, in policing, you got some that are good in housing and sanitation in their individual areas, which is fantastic and all needed. But Ray has something where he can come in and he can manage all of that. And he's coming in, not in anybody's pocket. He's coming in, he hasn't been in a previous administration. He's coming in fresh with amazing policy and vision and leadership. And you know what, Emily, what people are responding to the most actually about him out in the field is his authenticity, his authenticity, his integrity, and their belief that his real business skill set is what New York City needs in this moment. Have you thought about how you would take all of the activism that you've built up at this point throughout your life? And if he was to win, how you would utilize it in that role as the first lady of the city? What, what I will say is... Um, I have my own, you know, activity going on. If he were to be elected mayor of New York City, I think I would just continue the work that I've been doing, um, an area that is um, near and dear to my heart. Uh, I mean, of course, education, um, but particularly an area where I've done a lot of work in is in the area of um, violence interruption throughout our city. And programs like Life Camp, run by Erica Ford, which they're, they're violence disruptors, interrupters who hire formerly incarcerated people, hire former gang members that actually work to co-produce public safety with police. 
and help um, prevent violence before it happens, help prevent shootings. Um, the ethos of that model and also her crisis management models, to me, speaks to this this period that we are in in New York City, where we need the community organizers coming together with the elected officials, with in the, as it relates to safety, with the police, to figure out how we can work together. You know, I don't know if you know Philip Atiba Goff. He's one of the police data experts that... Um, Ray and I have spoken to on a number of occasions, and he was actually in one of my documentaries when he was working for the Thurgood Marshall Institute. Um, But he did this um, program where he, for over a three-day period, he got, you know, several dozen police commissioners and several dozen actual police abolitionists together. He got them in a room together to kind of hash it out and figure out what are we going to do to resolve the issues that we have between ourselves, between the community and the police. And do you know after three days of them being together, police abolitionists and police commissioners, they wanted, the key finding was that they wanted 90% of the same outcome, right? 90% of the same outcome. And that essentially was, which we know, is that police want to stop being called into situations that they're not equipped to deal with, right? They're not, they're not mental health experts. <laughs> they're not um, psychologists. They're, 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 they're not a lot of things. <laughs> um, right. and, and, and communities, under-resourced communities, wanted to stop needing to call police so much. They don't want to have to call police. They don't want to have to call 911 when a relative is having a schizophrenic episode. But so many of these communities are so resource deprived, they can only call the police. So I bring up that example for the purpose of the spirit of how New York City is going to come together in this moment. It can't be about business as usual. It can't be about bureaucracy. It can't be about, I cut this side deal with such and such politician and they're supporting me because I promised them they're going to be chief of police or they, it can't be about they're supporting me because I promised them they're going to be school chancellor because you know a whole lot of that is going on. (laughs) Um, It has to be about what is best for New York City. And right now people are concerned about the economy and jobs and safety and education and housing and homelessness. And it needs to be approached from the perspective of we need to get economic opportunity and economic justice because none of these other social justice issues are going to be able to be addressed without economic justice. And that comes through the economy being revitalized. Right. And Crystal, we haven't even touched on such a major part of both of our lives of being a parent of three kids. Um, And we've actually (laughs) purposely not touched on that, which is incredibly impressive, um, because we're going to continue this conversation. We're going to continue this conversation later this week on parents.com. And on their Instagram live, because you are going to join us. Um, We are doing a 
Moms Run the World series on Instagram Live, and you are going to be <laughs> the second mom who runs the world on it. We Our first Yay. is Senator Tammy Duckworth. But later this week, you're going to join us again on Parents, and I definitely want to get in at that point on how your perspective as a parent has has formed your work, inspired your work, and how you think about it. But Crystal McCrary, so great to have you on. Thank you. I'm Emily Tish sussman host of Your Political Playlist, and I hope you guys will join us later. Thank you so much, Crystal. Great to have you on. Thank you, Emily. Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Political Playlist. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Your Political Playlist, where you can see video of my interview with Crystal and join us live to ask questions during future ones. For more from Crystal, you can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Crystal McCrary. Join us every week for smart but bite-sized conversations with women at the seat of power and activism. Subscribe if you like us, leave us a rating, and comment to let others know. Talk to you next time. May is Small Business Month, and after a difficult year due to the pandemic, it's even more important than ever that we support our local stores and communities. So I'm sharing a few of my favorite businesses. First, I want to mention Princess Awesome, where I buy most of my kids' clothes. They have amazing prints for both boys and girls. They have math for girls, trains for girls. My daughters love their construction truck dresses, and my son loves his butterfly shorts. You'll see him in them all the time. Second, I get most of my clothes from my friend Joey Wolfer's store. They are different, original, and at Storefront, I love it. And lastly, if we're getting up, we're getting drinks, check out Empower Cocktails, incredible cocktails for women, started by my friend Tiffany Hall. I think she's got a new drink coming out soon, so check that one out too. And I hope you'll continue to shop small throughout the year.